Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and I'm back. And you might have wondered where we went. Well, Z and I were off getting married. So the wedding was amazing. It was officiated by Joe Streckard of the Weird History Podcast. It featured an awesome rendition of an Electric Six song by Miles from Explain the X-Men. And honestly, the whole thing was more than we could have possibly hoped for. And now that it's all over, we're very happy and also very tired. But thank you all for being patient as we get back to business. And now that I'm back, as you know, this podcast is entirely listener supported. We're independent. We're free. And that's only possible because of the support of our members. And if you'd like to become a member, we'd love to have you. And as our way of thanking you, you'll get access to extra episodes and rough transcripts. There are right now 87 members episodes, and that number will continue to grow as long as the show continues. But currently, that's equivalent to a full third of the main show on top of the nearly 250 free episodes. And they're all there for you for supporting the project. And signing up is really easy. Just go to thebritishhistorypodcast.com and follow the instructions for becoming a member. And thank you very much to Ryan, Katie, and Emma for signing up already. We've reached the end of an era. It was late 889, and Alfred, who has been the central figure for dozens of episodes, was at last at rest. But with his death, there was a sudden opening at the top levels of West Saxon politics, and Alfred's son, Edward, was a top contender for that position. Now, Edward is commonly referred to in sources as Edward the Elder, which, if you know a little bit about what was happening with West Saxon politics at the time, is more than a little bit cheeky of a nickname, because Edward the Elder was the younger brother of Athelflaed, and he was also younger than his main rival claimant to the throne, Athelwald Atheling. And it would be a bit like me calling myself Jamie the Hirsute, despite the fact that I look like I should be guarding Rivendell. But sometimes a good PR campaign and a little branding can outshine even the clearest of facts. And so here we are, over a thousand years later, still calling him Edward the Elder. And as a new century was dawning, Edward had his eye on the throne. But if he was smart, he was keeping his other eye on his cousin, Athelwald. Because Athelwald had his own plans as well. But before we get to that story, we have to contend with the rise of a new century. And so let's continue our tradition of catching up where the rest of the world was every 100 years. Because the world keeps on spinning, and being able to place these events in context with the rest of the world can help give us a better understanding of the state of things. And to begin with, we're going to take a look at an important story that hasn't gained a lot of attention in our sources, because it didn't directly intersect with the main accounts provided by Asser, the Chronicle, and the related scribes. We're going to have a look and what was going on in Scotland. And that might seem like a really simple thing to do, but it's actually a nearly impossible task because of two main problems. Sources and timing. Sadly for us, and I mean very sadly, as Dr. Z can trace significant portions of her personal ancestry back to Scotland, this area of the world just didn't produce much writing during the Middle Ages. Or if they did, it didn't survive. I mean, we've got the Irish Annals, but they only occasionally focus on Scotland. And we have the Pictish Chronicle, but that wasn't compiled until the mid-10th century. And there are a few other bits of evidence, but overall, 
our sources for this region are extremely spotty in their quality and also spotty in what their authors choose to cover. The problem is, is that being able to read and write was a specialized skill during this era, and Scotland was dealing with an immense amount of disruption during that same time. And that appears to have seriously constrained the availability and survival of written records, which consequently means that we have very few primary sources for what was occurring in Scotland during this time. Now, primary sources, to remind everyone in the audience who doesn't study this for a living, is the term that we give to pieces of writing, essentially evidence, that were written during the period that they're speaking about. So, for a historian who's studying the early 21st century, they might use press conferences, newspapers, and even your diary as a primary source. But for Scotland during this period, we just don't have much of that. Not even the Pictish Chronicle counts as a primary source for the 9th century. Meanwhile, to the south, we've got Asser, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, various charters, and other supporting documents that came out of that region. And so that meant that generally, if we want to know what's going on in Britain during this period, we had to turn to southern sources for the clearest accounts. And those southern scribes simply didn't have much to say about their northern neighbors. And I understand why. Geographical distances and the fact that Scotland didn't really directly affect a lot of what was going on in the South would certainly make them far less important to discuss than, say, an invading army led by Guthrum. So consequently, they got short shrift. Now granted, sometimes we did have records, and sometimes Scotland did directly intersect with the story that was being told in the South. For example, in episodes 217 and 218, we talked about Halfdan's ravaging of Strathclyde and the settlement in Orkney. But overall, we really do lack sources, and that's why Scotland hasn't appeared all that much in the last season. And that's a shame, but on the bright side, it did make the story a little bit easier to tell and probably easier for you to digest. I mean, if you thought it was hard to keep track of a grab bag of small southern kingdoms and like a billion Athels, imagine adding the Picts and the Scots into the mix. Especially when they didn't even really interact all that much, and largely all we know about them are names on regnal lists. It would have been mad. But the truth is, the real reason for Scotland not appearing all that much in the main story is due to sources and a lack of interaction. However, at the same time, I really hate leaving things out. And just because our sources are weak doesn't mean that nothing was happening in the North. In fact, this is a crucial period in Scottish history because we're talking about the end of the Picts. Sort of. Probably not. I mean, perhaps the end of the Picts? Maybe? It really is that much of a mystery. But the way it all plays out and how long it takes leads us to the second of the two problems. Timing. When would it make the most sense to place this episode? I mean, the last Celt cast ended with the birth of Kenneth MacAlpin, known in English as Kenneth MacAlpin. And while Kenneth will be the linchpin in this episode, the episode itself is honestly less about him personally and more about what was going on in Scotland in general. And so the question was, do we place the episode at the time when Kenneth was ruling which would have been around the same time as the rule of King Alfred the Great's dad, King Athelwolf? Or do we place it around the time when we start to see the full impact of Kenneth's reign, which was around the time when Kenneth's grandsons were ruling, and which is also where we're at right now in the story? Obviously, I decided to go for the latter. But the thing I want to make clear here, and the reason why I'm doing so much behind-the-scenes explanation, 
is that I want you to understand that this is an episode out of time. Sort of. We're going to be talking about events that occurred in the mid-9th century, but we're also talking about their effects, and those wouldn't fully come to bloom until the dawn of the 10th century, which is where we're at right now in the show. And if this is all confusing, don't worry, it'll make more sense by the end of the episode. So let's get to it, and let's begin right where we left off in the last Scottcast, with the dawn of the 9th century and the arrival of the Viking Age. This was a hard time for the region, but it's also the era where Scotland got its name. For as bad as the southern kingdoms of Britain had it with the northern raiding bands, there's evidence that Scotland had it worse. The holy monastery of Iona, the center of the cult of Columba, was repeatedly attacked by marauding fleets until finally the community of Iona gave up in 807, and they fled their home and took with them their prized possessions. Many of them went to Ireland, while others went eastward, farther and deeper into Scotland. And even if you haven't heard of the disaster of Iona, you've probably heard of one of its treasures. The Book of Kells was one of those possessions that was taken from Iona to Ireland, and it was held at the new monastery at Kells. Now, many of these earlier attacks likely began at Orkney. The attacks on Iona probably began at Orkney, and we talked about that in earlier episodes. But the important part here is that what was happening with the evacuation of that monastery and the fracturing of the cult of Columba, with one portion going into Ireland and another portion heading eastward and eventually taking root at Dunkeld, well, that's a microcosm of the story of Scotland in the 9th century. Scotland during this period was at a crossroads, and much like the cult of Columba, it was being torn in two directions. One portion was reaching west into Ireland and the other was reaching east into Pickland. Now, this wasn't a new problem for Scotland. By this point in its history, the Scots of Ireland were already deeply entrenched in the western portions of the region. Moreover, the merging of cultures was already occurring. We see generations of Pictish kings who carry Gaelic names. But with the emergence of the Scandinavian threat and the tremendous disruptions that they were causing in the politics north of the Wall, Scotland was heading for a major change, and that change would come in the form of Kenneth MacAlpin. Now, Kenneth is the man who gets much of the credit for making Scotland, but the reality is that he was building upon the work of generations of his predecessors, and the true making of Scotland was really too great to occur over just one person's lifetime. As we have spoken about in previous episodes, Scotland's geography was rugged and hard to travel. It was also populated with deep cultural divisions. Now, a king must be able to travel his lands if he's going to be able to rule effectively. And Scotland made that extremely difficult because certain regions were just really hard to reach. Furthermore, those same land barriers that made it hard for a king to travel his lands also created an insular perspective amongst the locals. It's really hard to convince people that they're part of a larger organization of communities and that they should care about people from some other village far away when travel to that area was so unlikely that they probably never had any contact with the people from that area. So the making of Scotland was no easy task, and it began long before Kenneth, and the project would actually continue long after his death. But the crucial period where the balance of power really tipped began with Kenneth who's a figure shrouded in a great deal of mystery, 
fully blossom by the time of his grandsons, and then ended roughly two centuries later with the reign of Macbeth. Yeah, that Macbeth. But let's talk about Kenneth. As we have discussed in earlier episodes, the North during this period was heavily tribal. Politics were handled at a clan level, and that carried its own advantages as well as its own disadvantages. But that's the world that Kenneth was used to. And it's hard to say exactly what his early life was like, nor precisely what clan structure he came from. Now, later records connect him to an obscure clan called the Canal Gebrain, though the validity of those records is far from certain. Similarly, no one is sure exactly what Kenneth's ethnic background was. Was he Pictish? Was he a Gale? Was he culturally a Gale, but part of a Pictish line? The whole thing is controversial, and the pedigree charts were written long after Kenneth was dead, and they include a curious mix of both Irish and Pictish names. So it's genuinely hard to say exactly who he was and where he came from, and we're going to get back to that in a few minutes. But at some point, Kenneth rose in power and claimed the throne of Dalriada, and ruled there for two years. Maybe. Like I said, it's all really dodgy and for reasons that'll become very clear very soon. And then, sometime between 839 and 844, we're told that Kenneth became king of all the Picts. And there's a lot of fanfare about this, because this meant that he was holding the crown of Dalriada and the crown of Pickland. Okay, so he's holding two crowns. Why are we making such a big deal out of this guy? Is it because of the mystery? Probably not, because Kenneth wasn't the first king of Britain to rise in power without much of a trace. We've seen that happen in kingdoms all throughout Britain during this period. Nor was he the first king to have reigned during a crucial period, and yet lack a detailed contemporary account of those times. I would say the reason why people focus on him has as much to do with his myths as it does with who he actually was. Because the fact of the matter is that the entire story of Kenneth is rather strange. And it's complicated by the fact that there are a ton of myths that popped up regarding him in subsequent centuries. And actually, chances are, if you have strong opinions about Kenneth McAlpin, it's because of one of those myths. For example, within a century after his death, a popular story began to circulate that Kenneth's rule came to an end because he was the victim of a coup. That story was later added to, and by the 11th and 12th centuries, the common story was that there was a backlash because Kenneth rose to power through a fraudulent claim to the throne, or even through force. But the stories don't stop there. There are also stories circulating that Kenneth carried out a grand act of treachery against the Pictish nobility, a sort of black dinner before the Douglas clan made black dinners famous. And Gerald of Wales wrote in the 12th and 13th century about this black dinner. And he told us that in 841, Kenneth and the Dalriatic army defeated the army of the Picts. And that following that victory, he invited King Drest of Pictland and the remaining Pictish nobility to Schoon, ostensibly to discuss the freedom of Dalriada. But during that meeting, a horde of gales snuck in and slaughtered the Picts. If you've ever read or watched A Game of Thrones, you might remember The Red Wedding. Part of the inspiration for that scene was the Black Dinner. Now, Geraldus Cambrensis added details to that story, and he said that there were traps placed underneath the seats of the unsuspecting Pictish nobility. Other sources wrote that there were pit traps filled with swords and spears, and the Picts fell into them and got impaled. And then, according to these legends, 
after the destruction of the Pictish nobility, Kenneth merged Pictland, which he had a claim to via his Pictish mother, with Gaelic Dalriada, which he had inherited from his Gaelic father, and he made them into a single kingdom known as Alba, Scotland. Then, by the 16th century, we got a new twist on that story. George Buchanan wrote about how Kenneth's father, Alpin, was murdered by the Picts, and Kenneth conquered the region to get revenge. Now, Buchanan, when writing this, decided to not include the story about Kenneth McAlpin going and tricking the Picts and murdering all of them. And instead, we get the story of heroic revenge. So while we are seeing a proliferation of myths, we're also seeing some editing. And there's one other thing that you should know about Buchanan, and honestly, all of these stories. As far as we can tell, none of these stories have any historical basis. The Pictish Chronicle makes no mention of conquest or fraud when it records Kenneth's ascent. And adding to the credibility problem of some of these legends is the fact that in some of them, Kenneth's birth is off by over a hundred years. So what we're left with is a story of Kenneth that's confusing and also clearly at least a little bit mythical. And by the time we reached the 1800s, which was when what we consider proper history was beginning to be practiced, fledgling historians were confronted with a mess of contradictory accounts that were written long after the events. And they looked at them, and they tried to work out what might have really happened. The lurid details that came about in the myths would have made great TV, but they were also written many hundreds of years after Kenneth's death. And so they were tossed aside. And instead, the historians decided to go back to a source that they trusted, and a source that actually predated all of this. They went back to Bede. And Bede told us that the Picts relied upon matrilineal succession, and that became the starting point for the study of this era. Then the historians looked at the regnal list for Pictland, and what they saw were a bunch of kings of Pictland who weren't themselves Pictish. They saw Talorgan, son of Ainfrith, who was a Northumbrian, reigning as king. They saw Bridey, son of Billy, who was a Briton, reigning as king. They saw Gales, like Ungus, reigning as king of Pickland. It became clear, looking at the records, that being born Pictish wasn't a necessary precondition for reigning as king over Pickland. And that would have made sense to these historians, because by the time that they were writing, they had seen nobles from all over Europe reign as king of England. So it's hardly all that surprising that this would have happened in Pickland. And so, looking at all of this, they determined that the only way Kenneth's ascension to the throne made sense was if Kenneth was a Gaelic king of Dalriada, and that he didn't seize the throne of Pickland, but rather he inherited it through his mother, who was a Pict. Problem solved, right? Wrong. That was in the 1800s. And since then, there have been many more historians who've looked at this problem and have come to different conclusions. For example, some have argued that there's actually no evidence that Kenneth was a Gael. They point out that it was nearly 400 years after his death before the first story of Kenneth conquering Pickland comes about, and that prior to Kenneth's reign, there were four Pictish kings. So they say that Kenneth was just the fifth Pictish king. And this is actually a rather popular point of view, though it's by no means a universally accepted view. And honestly, how could it be when we're dealing with so much mystery? Now, you might be asking, how could Kenneth have risen to power in a Gaelic kingdom of Dalriada 
without having a Gaelic background. He must have been a Gael. Sure, the Picts allowed people who weren't Pictish to rule over them, but that doesn't mean that the Gaels did as well. So if Kenneth was ruling over Dalriada, doesn't that prove that he was a Gael? And that's a good question, hypothetical listener. But the thing is that shortly before Kenneth's ascension to the throne of Dalriada, the whole region of the north had turned into a bit of a thunderdome. In fact, in the 15 years before Kenneth took the throne, there were 10 contenders for that throne, and Kenneth was just one of them. And these claimants were dying rapidly, often in battle with the Northmen or each other. This region, along with its records, was an epic mess. But it's thought that all of that fighting created an opening in Dalriada. And here's the quick and dirty version as best as I can compile it for you. In Dalriada, there's a guy named Aoganen, who sounds like a villain in The Legend of Zelda, but was actually a Dalriadic noble. And he led a rebellion and ousted King Aed, son of Boanta, of Dalriada. By doing so, he became King Aoganen. Meanwhile, in Pictland, Drust and Talorgan were fighting amongst themselves over the throne of Pictland. And in their fighting, they had left their flank exposed. So, King Aoganen saw the opportunity, and he invaded, killing them both. But he was eventually pushed back into Dalriada by Ferrat, son of Bargoyet, who then became King Ferrat of Pictland. So now things stabilize a little bit because we have King Ferrat in Pictland and King Aoganen in Dalriada. But then the Norse attacked. And so Aoganen and Aid, do you remember him? He was the previous Dalriadic king that King Aoganen defeated and nicked his kingdom. Well, Aoganen and Aid put their differences aside and fought the Vikinger army. And they were both slain. And that left us with King Farad and Pictland, and then an empty throne in Dalriada. And into this situation entered Kenneth, and he became the king of Dalriada. But Dalriada was a Gaelic kingdom, and Kenneth... Cunetha is an incredibly Pictish name. Furthermore, his father, Alpin, doesn't appear in the Irish annals or any of the king lists. So who was this guy? Where did he come from? Was he even a Gael? How did he get on the throne? It's hard to say, but the argument that some are making is that these were desperate times, and what Dalriada probably needed most at this point was someone who knew how to lead and who had the resolve necessary to lead the battered kingdom into victory. And thus, we have King Kenneth of Dalriada. And then the interesting thing is that two years later, he also claimed Pictland. And so looking at all of this, some scholars have argued that Kenneth was a Pictish warrior who was just in the right place at the right time, and his hereditary claim to Dalriada was backfilled later on, sort of a retroactive lineage. And that would account for the murky details regarding his clan, the Kenel Gabrain. And then later, he properly inherited the Pictish kingdom on top of it. Though other scholars argue that Kenneth was a dual national, because while Kenneth's name was Pictish, he also had a brother. And that brother had an extremely Scottish name, Donald. And so these scholars claim that this is evidence that there was a Gaelic father and a Pictish mother. Some have even gone so far as to do some crazy alchemical work on regnal lists and argue that Constantine might have been Kenneth's maternal grandfather. But ultimately, all of this is just scholars fighting over whether or not the king of Dalriada and Pictland was both a Gael and a Pict, 
or whether he was just Pictish, or whether he was just Gaelic. I told you it was a mess. And this is actually going to get a little bit worse with what I'm about to say next. The one thing that we're pretty sure about Kenneth, the one thing that most people know when they say that they know about Kenneth McAlpin, isn't all that well-grounded either. The truth is that Kenneth wasn't all that remarkable of a king of Pictland, and to say that he was the first king of Scotland is kind of a stretch. First of all, Kenneth's dominion, despite the myth that he was the king of all the Picts, appears to have only been four Pictish provinces, at most. Furthermore, his kingdom was significantly smaller than his predecessors, Constantine and Ungus, both of whom are regarded as overseeing a golden age for Pictland. So in comparison, Kenneth wasn't even particularly that powerful, even at his height. Furthermore, Kenneth really wasn't all that effective or long-reigning as a king. He reportedly only held the throne for 16 years, and his reign was marred by war along the southern border, as well as some issues to the north. So in his short time on the throne, Scotland didn't see peace. It saw war, possibly for his entire reign. And he also appears to have spent a considerable amount of time attempting to assert his authority over his subjects, with historians arguing that he spent at least half of his reign on shaky ground, with even one historian referring to that period as his probation. It's also been argued that Kenneth's rise in power might have only been made possible because he had an alliance with a Nordic king Guthfrith out of the Hebrides, which isn't exactly the Gaelic tale of domination that's typically told. Adding to this problem, we also have the written record, which shows that Kenneth wasn't all that special when it comes to kings. He wasn't the first king to rule over Pictland after first ruling over Dalriada. He wasn't the first king to hold both of those crowns. He wasn't the first king of Pictland to give his sons Roman and Gaelic names. And here's the crucial part. He wasn't the last king of Pictland. In fact, it wasn't until the reign of Kenneth's grandson, Constantine II, that the Scottish Chronicle finally changed its title and stopped referring to Pictavia and started referring to the King of Albania, or in our modern tongue, the King of Scotland. That's kind of telling, isn't it? That it wasn't until the reign of Kenneth's grandson that we start hearing about the first King of Scotland. And yet we have all these legends, and they're old legends. And so we're stuck with a bunch of accounts of Kenneth, and they're accounts that are far closer in time with him than we are now. And so I understand if you say, well, wouldn't they know better than we do because they're so much closer in time? And why would they take a man who seemed to have been a marginally ineffectual warlord and elevate him to the legendary first king of Scotland? What motivation would they have to lie? Well, for all kinds of reasons, to be honest. There's a good chance that the strange murkiness of Kenneth's background, where he almost seems to have been whatever nationality you want him to be, combined with the odd tales of conquest and murder, are all serving the same purpose. They were building an origin story. Creating origin stories is a rather human thing. We see them all over the place, and they get created for all sorts of reasons. Sometimes it's to create an identity that says, we are different from those people over there, because those people suck. Sometimes it's to explain something that isn't fully understood at the time, like how a group of people could go from one language and culture to another. Sometimes they're just stories, and they get embellished for reasons that probably made sense at the time, but are now just confusing. There are all sorts of reasons why we invent stories. 
But much like the Anglo-Saxon migration picked up all sorts of mythic aspects over the centuries, it looks like Kenneth, if he ever truly existed, also picked up additional myths as time went on. And so what we're dealing with here isn't a history, but it still can tell us quite a bit. In particular, it sheds some light on the creation of Scotland. And I know, it sounds like I just had a stroke because I've just spent the last 15 minutes or so telling you about how Kenneth didn't really make Scotland. But when it comes to the formation of Scotland, whether or not he really was the first king in his lifetime doesn't matter so much as what people believed in the subsequent decades. What these stories do is they establish the foundation for unified rule. Chances are, much like what we saw in the Heptarchy in the South, what was happening in the North was a gradual merging of various ruling dynasties, accompanied by a shift in culture and language. Pretty normal human stuff. But for the ruling families, they had a tough nut to crack. They had people with a long history of clannish behavior who were separated from many of their neighbors by rugged territory. And yet, it seems that these ruling families were following the growing culture that was happening elsewhere in the British Isles. What we're seeing is a bunch of minor kings looking to revive the concept of a high king, or perhaps even just annex everybody and have a sole king over all the territory. And that's no easy feat, especially when there's a culture that pushes back against such concepts. And we know that old Gaelic concepts of kingship wouldn't have been helping them at all. For example, there's an early Gaelic legal statement that said, quote, the people make the king, end quote. So, if you're King Donald II, or King Constantine II, or one of the later kings like Malcolm II, and you want to prove to these clannish groups that you're actually their rightful king, you need to navigate a whole host of issues. You need to find a way to say, no, 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 I'm one of you. But the problem is, is that you have at least two major cultures existing in the north, you have the Picts and the Gales, and you also have a wide swath of territory that isn't easy to reach. So if you say, no, no, I'm one of you, then what about the other group? What about those other clans? And what does any of this have to do with Kenneth? Well, remember right at the start of this episode when I talked about the abandonment of Iona and the splitting of the cult of Columba between Ireland and Pictland? Well, midway into Kenneth's reign, the religious site of Dunkeld was finally completed, and the cult of Columba decided to establish itself there. And that's important, because we're seeing relics from the patron saint of Dalriada, which is a Gaelic patron saint, being established at the center of religious life of Pictland. So we're seeing a merging of Gaelic and Pictish cultural touchstones. Furthermore, the location of Dunkeld was just as important as its saint. It was in the neighborhood of Schoon, which many believe was the seat of power for the old Pictish kingdom of Fortriu. And that could account for why some of the Irish sources talk about Kenneth as being the first to hold the kingdom of Schoon. But the placement of Schoon was important, and the McAlpin hold on it was so complete that by the time of Kenneth's grandson's reigns, Schoon was considered the center of the McAlpin dynasty. Some legends even credit Kenneth with bringing the Stone of Destiny to Schoon. But just on the establishment of Dunkeld, we can see some of why Kenneth gets so much attention. We are in an era marked by the expansion of the idea of kingship. And in his short reign, we see the North making a firm shift towards those concepts of kingship. And it's being facilitated through Dunkeld, where we're seeing a blending of Gaelic and Pictish backgrounds. And also at Schoon, where we see a blending of the old power base of Fortriu 
and the new ruling dynasty of the Macalpins. By placing so much import on Kenneth's rule, and declaring that he was a blend of Pictish and Gaelic parents, regardless of whether or not it was true, the later kings who traced back to him were able to point back and say, I am an heir to this whole region. As the years went on, people added to that myth. But at its heart, this blend of the old and the new, along with a blend of the Gaelic and Pictish, again, regardless of whether any of this was true, provided a foundation for legitimacy that many subsequent kings of Scotland relied upon. After Kenneth's death, his heirs went on to expand and secure this idea of Scotland. Their reigns, much like the Anglo-Saxon kings of the time, were heavily marked by Vikinger incursions, and how they secured their reigns varied from king to king. Some did so by marrying family members to the kings of Dublin, others did so in battle. But they all built upon what Kenneth began, and they furthered the idea that Alba was a single entity. So even though he almost certainly wasn't the first king of Scotland, the legends of his reign and the establishment of Dunkeld and Schoon set the foundation for that kingdom. So, he sort of was the first king of Scotland. Funny how things work out, isn't it? If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, or you want to tell me about how I butchered a few Scottish names, like I'm pretty sure A.O. Gannon, uh, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also join us on Twitter. We're at British Podcast, and you can join all our other communities by looking in the upper right-hand corner of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.